Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last week, the federal government announced a $4.5 billion upgrade to the national broadband network in one of a number of significant announcements ahead of the delayed budget uh, coming next week. The original scheme proposed by the former Labor government was amended by the coalition to deliver fibre optic cable to the node rather than the premises, which we were told would be cheaper and quicker to roll out and still deliver internet speeds required of most Australians. But like so many aspects of life, the pandemic has revealed weaknesses in the system with so many of us working and studying from home. To help us understand this decision and the thorny issue of integrity in government decision making, we have Paddy Manning on the line. He's an investigative journalist and contributing politics editor over at The Monthly. Paddy, thanks so much for coming on Triple R today. Hi, Dylan. Thanks for having me. And you wrote an article for the Saturday paper back in April on how the pandemic was putting a big strain on the National Broadband Network. To what extent can we understand this recent decision in the context of how people have experienced the NBN in recent months? Well, I think that context is part of it. You have seen record traffic, so you have seen record internet use. Um, predictably as a result of everyone working from home, the increased, you know, telehealth consultations with doctors uh, and and not just working from home, but obviously being, you know, stuck at home and therefore, you know, demand for, um, you know, entertainment as well. So at home, um, you know, with streaming and, that, you know, that explosive growth was, you know, uh, forecast. But, um, but yeah, what was not forecast was that everyone would be in lockdown. Um, and, uh, and you'd have to say that the network has held up. You know, the government acted fairly quickly when COVID first struck um, to, you know, give uh, through the NBN extra um, capacity to the network. So part of the issue, the constraints with um, internet speeds, which have seen Australia languish at the sort of bottom of international league tables, is actually to do with the pricing, mm. not just to do with the, um, not just to do with the technology used to roll out the network. And um, and so they made extra capacity available. And uh, and now what they've done last week, uh, however, is 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 partly a response to the fact that, you know, the, the network's held up okay, but what's happened is that Telstra is starting to roll out 5G and uh, 5G, and they're targeting those parts of, um, you know, metropolitan Australia in particular, um, the suburbs where fibre to the node was rolled out because they reckon they can deliver a competitive and faster internet experience um, uh, than people are getting on fibre to the node, which is the copper-based wire that the coalition under Malcolm Turnbull as then communications minister decided it would be better to roll out. So it's kind of it's kind of complicated. The pandemic is part of the context, but so is the emergence of 5G. And so they've, the coalition has realised, uh, without admitting as much, that fibre to the node is not going to cut it, and uh, they're going to need to they're going to need to fix it. Now, upgrades are a, a cute term, actually. Uh, we can get into that if you like. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, it's funny because um, that's not the only link between 5G and coronavirus that people have made, but that's just another topic, <laughs> and um, we're not going to go to conspiracies right now. Um, but, I mean, you know, many people have welcomed this upgrade to the NBN um, 
because you know people wanted it at the at the time and and 11 years later we're getting something like what the ALP originally conceived of but is the rollout of 5G going to complicate uh, the the you know so-called upgrade to the MBN do you think well it's a threat and the problem is you know the the merit of the original model of rolling fiber to the premise 90 you know 90% of 93% of homes and businesses around Australia uh, was that um, you would be able to not just deliver faster internet but be able to um, you know easily uh, compete with technologies like 5g so having a mix of technologies in the um, in the NBM which is now you know the rollouts now completed uh, they've got fiber to the node they've got fiber to the curve they've got you know hybrid fiber coaxial cable which is the old pay TV cables and then they've got fiber to the premise so having all that mix means that they're vulnerable they're vulnerable not only is the internet slower but the revenue base is lower you know um, they're more vulnerable to competitive threats from what you know uh, wireless technologies like 5g so um, so that's part of the problem um, to the to the, the other problem is that um, you know when they call this an upgrade, fiber of the node is going to be completely and wholly redundant. Um, it's not uh, an upgrade. They're building, extending fiber in parallel to the existing network. So effectively, in those suburbs where they've rolled fiber to the node, they're rolling out another network. It's an unbelievably inefficient waste of money. Mm. You know, if they had built it... If they had built it, as Malcolm Turnbull said, by 2016, with a minimum of 25 megabits per second to every Australian household for you know 30 billion dollars, then everyone would have been applauding. But they didn't. It cost 50, and um, and it's only just been completed in 2020. Is this also being used as, as sort of a convenient way, I suppose, of, of trying to get people back into work by, you know, spending big on an infrastructure project uh, through um, you know, an organisation that was sort of set up by the government? Does that make it a particularly ripe uh, mechanism, I suppose, for uh, driving some kind of post-COVID recovery at all? It's perfect. Um, it, as, as a form of kind of stimulus, it's perfect because it is shovel-ready, as the communications minister said at the press club last week. Um, you know, uh, you have got a workforce there. You know what the um, you know what the you know what the work that needs doing, and um, and so for, for that reason, if it, it, it you know he said last week that it was going to create twenty five thousand new jobs um, in in the rollout. Well. That's good news. You know that is good news for the economy, and um, and it is good news that that uh, finally, um, you know, there is there is the prospect of a fibre um, optic cable connection to you know more homes. Not all of them. You know, there's more than five million homes on on fibre to the node, and they've only announced upgrades for two. So there's more to come. Um, but. You know, it's a start at least, and it's the first time that the coalition has properly acknowledged that it's going to have to fix this network that it's built. I've often been wondered about the the coalition at the moment and the nationals. Do they have anything to do with this, um, Paddy, or, or not? Not really. Well, it was funny, you know. I saw um, 
I saw Barnaby Joyce's partner, Vicky Campion, in the papers on the weekend complaining about the delay when Barnaby do- does interviews because um, uh, his, you know, televised appearances have to go through the Skymaster satellite and there's often a lag which makes him appear like he's interrupting. So I thought that was an interesting kind of um, uh, complaint from basically the coalition that, um, you know, opposed. Initially, they, they were saying it was um, gold-plated, you know, and, uh, and you know, the Labor plan to put up two satellites to cover regional, regional Australia was like a Rolls-Royce option. In the end, they've put up three, and uh, and and people are still complaining about it. You know, so um, the Nationals, I think, uh, uh, it, it's one of those examples where the Nationals just betray the interests of their electors. Um, you know, regional Australia, if anywhere needs, you know, um, can benefit from faster broadband, it's regional Australia. And someone like Tony Windsor up in the New England, you know, Barnaby Joyce's predecessor up in New England there, um, you know, he says that that's, that was the main reason why he backed the minority Gillard of, of Julia, um, minority government of Julia Gillard back in um, 2010, you know, because he saw the, 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 broad, the potential and the importance of broadband for regional Australia. And right now during COVID, we're seeing, you know, uh, you know, anecdotally, a lot of interest in people moving out of big cities and into the bush. Well, that's a great thing. But, um, but yeah, geez, it would be much easier if, um, if they had stuck with Labor's plan to get, you know, real, super fast broadband you know, universally. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm teaching this semester and it's very clear that those living in regional areas who have sort of had to go home because of the pandemic can't necessarily access the same quality of education because of shoddy internet connections and that sort of thing. But do you see that there will be, through this process and an upgrade to the NBN, greater equality of access across the nation, particularly those in regional areas who, you know, haven't haven't really had the same access to um, the fast internet speeds and and so on, as those living in more metropolitan regions have? Well, look, you have to go... There are places where it's uneconomic to deliver fibre. You know, you Mm. can't... If you've got an isolated rural property, you can't roll a fibre-optic cable out to it. They'll never get onto a... They'll never get, you know, fixed-line broadband that's comparable with the cities. There are places where it's uneconomic, especially in a massive country like this. And so that's why 7% of premises originally were covered either by fixed wireless or by by satellite. And, um, And... you know, so no, but but you will get more fibre, and that's mm. part of the plan that you know also that um, that uh, Minister Fletcher announced last week, and the, along with the NBM, was seven hundred million dollars to create these new fast internet zones. I think there's two hundred and eighty odd different zones that were going to be created in regional um, areas, in particular, um, seven hundred million seven hundred million dollars, and uh, and yeah, that's the idea that that those regional centres. Um, where, you know, most of the, you know, country population lives in towns, um, you know, they, they will they will get fibre. So, so you know, um, it's not going to be as easy as it is with the cities, but, yeah, this should, the, the announcements last week should certainly improve internet in the bush for sure. Um, Paddy Manning's with us, um, journalist and contributing politics editor at The Monthly. And, uh, I mean, you know, th- we're seeing the winding up of the NBN, Paddy, as we've just been discussing, and but we're seeing a persistence with other politics Policy areas, particularly the winding back of of job seeker payments and also job keeper. How should we read this? That the government's, um, you know, changing its tune on some policy areas where it said it was too costly and, and sticking with others. 
that um, that are also costly, but um, many say should be extended beyond beyond today um, and, and yeah. stay at the current rates. It, it is tricky. Like you've got to give credit to the government for managing an unprecedented, um, you know, uh, challenge in the pandemic um, and now this recession. Um, and you know they are trying to um, they are trying to walk a fine line between stimulus and um, and you know all the pressures of. Um, you know, reopening the economy while staying safe, while trying to keep the budget, you know, in some kind of shape. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to pretend that that's easy. On the other hand, um, they've been, you know, I think they haven't explained why it's necessary right now on Friday uh, to cut, you know, the payments for the unemployed or people on youth allowance or single parents because, you know, from this coronavirus supplement that came in, you know, early on in the pandemic um, of $550 a fortnight, cutting that down to $250, that's literally going to take the food off people's tables, you know, that, and it's, and it's going to under, undercut demand in the economy, you know, so... W- w- on any grounds, um, you know, the Treasurer said last week that, you know, the government should give up on, you know, had given up on trying to return the budget to surplus. So why doesn't it, you know, for the next four years, the forward estimates, so why doesn't it follow that they can afford to um, to maintain uh, this higher level of, you know, welfare? Um, why, you know, we've had people... Um, across the board calling for an increase to, you know, the unemployment benefit. It's been too long. It's been frozen for 25 years. Finally, this year, they've raised it during the pandemic. Um, And you've had anecdotal evidence of people actually, you know, doing things like going to the dentist and, you know, um, being able to have three meals a day, which they haven't been able to have. I mean, it's, it's appalling to be be forcing people back into poverty right now, um, especially when there's no economic reason to do it or, or fiscal reason. And, and you can make the same argument slightly different with JobKeeper, um, you know, because the unemployment scenario is not as bad as, as it seemed, according to, the, you know, it's only one month's figures, but the August unemployment data was actually very encouraging. Instead of unemployment rising, it went down, you know, from 75 to 6.8%. They're, they're the national now. numbers, not, not Victoria of course. No, that's right, yes. Uh, and Victoria will, you know, will be a drag on the next month's figures uh, and there's no doubt that unemployment nationally will um, will go up, uh, you know, uh, for obvious reasons before it goes back down. But, you know, I mean, if Victoria is turning the corner and it looks like it is, um, you know, there's every reason to expect that, that, that the economy can bounce back. Um, now, you know, it's sort of they've agreed to continue JobKeeper up until March. Um, but it's going to drop again at Christmas. You know, I look, I don't pretend to be an expert on, on what the right way forward is, or, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy, but I think withdrawing, withdrawing so much um, income support right now while the unemployment situation is still deteriorating is, is, a, is a bad move. 
Yeah, and, and, and just lastly, in the last um, few minutes we have you, Patty, I mean, the government integrity and decision-making has been in the papers again following the National Audit Office revealing how the government bought a parcel of land near Western Sydney at a rate 10 times its actual value. And I guess this we can think of perhaps as part of um, an issue involving the sort of so-called sports rorts scandal and, and the issue of water buybacks in the Murray-Darling Basin, Basin as well. Where do you see the conversation tracking with integrity in, in federal politics and particularly the push for a federal integrity bill to better hold um, government decision-making to account? Well, I think it's um, I think it's appalling. I think that you know the Attorney General Christian Porter um, has you know he's blown his own deadline um, for the introduction of a you know his bill for a National Integrity Commission. Uh, the model that they have anyway is you know we haven't even seen the draft legislation. Um, the pandemic the pandemic has kind of become a cover for everything you know that the coalition seems to want to be able to you know sort of get away with like you know um attacking universities by excluding them from JobKeeper and um you know defunding the arts effectively um you know they have um taken this opportunity of the pandemic i think to um to just put off what is going to be an uncomfortable debate for them because we have had scandal after scandal whether it's a you know levington pastoral company getting you know land purchased at somewhere between 10 and 22 times its value or you know angus taylor um selling over over his you know company he's linked with getting 80 million dollars worth of water water rights um you know, or going back through um, jam land and, you know, hello world and, you know, how many scandals can you actually um, point to? Mm. Reefgate, you know, and the government just does not want an ICAC. That's what it looks like. You know, and uh, and because they've, because the Attorney-General is busy doing his industrial relations negotiations, he's got this strange combination of portfolios, um, you know, he's been able to get away with not not introducing this legislation. Well, I think the crossbenchers certainly wanted to hurry that up, and uh, it'll be interesting the last few weeks of Parliament whether um, whether they actually because there will be a, a bill will come in from the crossbench. Yeah, it's been interesting to see some of those likes of uh, Helen Haynes agitating for that as well and, and suggesting yeah. that she will put up a bill. Um, it's been great having you on Triple R today, Paddy. Thanks so much for in, your insights, and we'll uh, catch you again soon and read you in the monthly. Cheers. Paddy Manning there, journalist and contributing politics editor over at The Monthly. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, we're heading to Indonesia now, and um, Indonesia, as an independent nation, is just 75 years young, uh, and its current president, Joko Widodo, the country's second directly elected president, is a year into his final five-year term, and after rising from obscurity to democratically elected president, hopes were high for Jokowi and Indonesia's democracy, but in recent times, activists and human rights advocates have become concerned about his more authoritarian reflexes. Jokowi 
is the subject of a timely new book which explores his presidential record to date and also documents his rise from furniture maker to leader of the fourth most populous nation. Ben Bland is the author of Man of Contradictions, Joko Widodo and the Struggle to Remake Indonesia. Ben's director of the Southeast Asia program at the Lowy Institute and he was previously correspondent for the Financial Times in Indonesia, China and Vietnam and it's really great to have you with us Ben. Um, welcome to Triple R. Good to be with you. And you've um, written that there's um, few global leaders that have risen as Jokowi has from obscurity um, right through. He was he was mayor of, of Solo in uh, on Java and also governor of Jakarta and then president. Uh, you sort of charted that, didn't you, as a, a foreign correspondent in Indonesia? Um, did you get a sense right from the beginning of meeting Jokowi that he would kind of go from Solo mayor right through when you first met him? I first met him back in 2012 when he was still the mayor of Solo, but he was running for the governorship of Jakarta, the Indonesian capital. So it was clear by that point that he already had ambitions. And when I first went out and followed him on the campaign trail in Jakarta, you could see he had this incredible connection with voters. People would just flock to him. And although he's a man of a few words, he doesn't really say that much. He was really able to electrify the campaign. So I sensed that he had this kind of this real retail political touch that I think so many politicians I've met all around the world you know, wish that they had it. They can pay for pollsters and consultants to try and kind of fake it to the top. But he really had this genuine connection, which is so rare. So I could see that there was something different about him, which was pretty exciting at the time. Yeah, I remember I was in Jakarta in 2013 and people were hugely excited about Jokowi and talking about him as a man of the people who, who sort of catches the bus and, and drinks coffee bought on the street and that sort of thing. Was that kind of image something that you think he worked hard to cultivate? I think like all good political images, you need a bit of reality and it takes work too to keep up the public perception. So there's no doubt that Jacoby came from humble background. And if you put it, he has the face of someone from the village. So Indonesians, ordinary Indonesians feel like this connection with him. But he also, of course, plays it up. And there's a, a performative element to this when Jacoby first registered to run for the mayoralty of Solo, his hometown, in 2005. He sort of led this convoy of people in bicycles and motorbike taxis and the like. And, you know, he, he thought about how to do this to present this image of being a man of the people. And obviously, the higher he rose in politics, the more he's had to work at the kind of political theatre of it to maintain this impression. But I think there is something genuine there as well. So it's that combination of uh, the real connection with people and the ability to play that up through the media, uh, through rallies, etc., to maintain that connection, even once he was a really uh, influential and uh, elite politician. Yeah, and I mean, you, you speak it um, right at length in in your book about um, this idea of blusukan, or, um, which is the Javanese word for... Um, what is it, on-the-spot checks where you kind of go out impromptu and, and go and check out what's happening at a market and the like. Is he still doing this now, uh, Ben, these kinds of um, spontaneous arriving somewhere and, and seeing what's happening on the ground? Not really. I mean, it still has the impression of that sometimes. It's obviously harder during the pandemic, but beforehand he would still have the appearance of doing that. But, you know, the Indonesian president is the commander-in-chief. Uh, they're surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of aides and security guards and just like any other world leader 
every time they go out to the ground or they travel around the country, everything is carefully stage managed for security and political reasons. So it's become much harder to do that in a genuine sense now because of the security aspect. But I also think more broadly, what works really well when you're managing your home city of 500,000 people and maybe even when you're the governor of Jakarta, a city of 10 million, it's almost impossible when you're leading a country of 270 million people uh, that stretches you know, almost 3,000 miles east to west. So it's not really a practical way to run the country, and it becomes more like political theater, a way to show people that you're doing things, but it's less effective and it's less genuine uh, by necessity, I think. And I suppose one part of the expectations that were placed on Jokowi came from some of the success he had, particularly as mayor of Solo. I wonder if you can talk through what he managed to achieve there and how he negotiated the, I guess, fairly um, you know, corrupt nature of the way that politics can be t- conducted in Indonesia sometimes and sort of broke through that to try and sort of get things moving in a way that hadn't sort of been done previously. Well, it's a really interesting question. So he, we have to understand where he came from. So he was from relatively humble beginnings. He built um, from, from not much a relatively successful but small furniture business. So he was worth about one million U.S. dollars in total wealth when he first ran um, for the mayoralty. And I think he saw things as a furniture maker who wanted to basically reduce uh, the burden of regulation on businesses to try and improve the quality of health and education in a way so that there would be a healthier, more productive workforce. So he really sees things through this nuts and bolts lens. And when he went to the town hall, city hall, after he was first elected, he had a focus on just getting things done. Yes, doing those spot checks, the blue can, and forcing civil servants to go and actually talk to voters about their problems, and slowly improving their processes for things like the, the issue of driving licenses, cleaning up local markets, trying to move people from slum communities to allow them to build their own small houses. So it was really focusing issue by issue, um, case by case on getting things done. And he was known as someone who was personally clean at a time when there was a lot of corruption during kind of the early phase of democratization in Indonesia. There were a lot of corrupt and ineffective local leaders. And Jacobi marked himself out by being personally clean and having this focus on hard work, listening to people and fixing the small things and not talking too much. So I think Simply by doing doing the little things right, he really cast himself in relief against the other local leaders who weren't doing a very good job for the most part of that time. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, that, that's a that's a good thing to stand out for, I guess. Uh, and also, his focus on you know raising um, people out of of poverty, and I think that has you know he's got a relatively good record there. I understand, but what has happened since? Because um, I mean, I think it was last year that there. That he was was part of passing laws that uh, started to dilute um, the corruption eradication commission that's in in place. So has has that held true? His his um, perception of of being someone to to cut through and and move past corruption in Indonesia. Well, this is one of the, the many contradictions of Jacoby that he he is personally seems to be quite clean, and although he didn't. You know, talk too much about anti-corruption. It was kind of an implicit part of his political promise that he would clean up the graft and the waste, which is endemic in Indonesian politics, unfortunately. But I think he's also, at the same time, someone who's always worked with local elites. 
too with the local business community, with established political parties, and that's obviously where a lot of the corruption and the rent-seeking resides. So from Solo through Jakarta to the presidential palace, he had on the one hand this sort of image of a guy who was the new broom, who would sweep away the cobwebs of corruption and bureaucracy. On the other hand, he was someone who worked with established power centers who were the cause of a lot of those problems. So I think we have seen in the presidential palace, as he's sort of sought political compromises with political parties and business tycoons to maintain his political position, that almost inevitably led to pressure on some of Indonesia's democratic norms and institutions, including the powerful and respected anti-corruption agency, which has really had some of its key powers taken away from it. And that's not a number, one of a number of, sort of areas where we've seen kind of the elites pushing back to take power, if you like, out of the democratic system, to take accountability and transparency away. And Jacoby, you know, like all the politicians, wants to survive. So he hasn't really pushed back on those grounds. So we see this contradiction between his promise as the new guy who cleans things up and, you know, the reality of politics that the compromises with, with the powers that be are messy and ultimately undermine hopes for reform. We're speaking with Ben Bland, director of the Southeast Asia program at the Lowy Institute, all about his brand new book, Man of Contradictions, which is the first English language biography of Indonesian President Joko Widodo. And I guess in that context of some moves towards uh, in the direction of authoritarianism, I suppose in recent years, there's been protests along religious lines, particularly stemming from the allegations of of blasphemy leveled against the um, former governor of Jakarta. Ahok, which led to him being put in prison. How has Jagowi sort of negotiated those issues in Indonesia, I guess, given that he was sort of formerly an ally and and friend of Ahok's? The first thing to say here is that Indonesia still remains the strongest democracy in Southeast Asia, one of the strongest democracies in in Asia, um, and it has remarkably free and fair, hotly contested elections. But there has been increasing pressure, as you're suggesting, in the last few years on democratic practice and principles in Indonesia, which is concerning, but I think we have to remember that wider frame. And mm. I think Jokowi, as a former furniture maker, as a former mayor, always has a practical lens on these things. You know, he's not the sort of guy who reads political biographies, who thinks about political philosophy. He's a guy who wants to get things done, to improve basic services, improve people's livelihoods. So I think that's, that's the framing. So when Jokowi's ally, Ahok, who was previously his deputy as governor of the Carter and then took over the job when Jokowi became president, when he came under attack from these um, radical and conservative Islamist groups uh, for alleged blasphemy, Jokowi in the end distanced himself from him, from Ahok, to survive. He's a political survivor, so he put his own position above all else, and he made some compromises, on the one hand compromising with some of the conservative Islamic figures, on the other hand, trying to use the law enforcement to crack down on some of the hardline elements. So he had this balanced approach. Alex went to jail for two years, and then when he came out, actually Jacoby has sort of semi-rehabilitated him by giving him a really important job as chairman of Indonesia's national oil and gas company. So I think it speaks to this, the balance and the circularity of Indonesian politics, that nothing is ever finite, that you can go down for blasphemy in your political career if you need to ruin and then Jokowi can sort of bring you back in a, in a certain guise. So I think it, it, it's about all about balances, it's all about contradictions, and it's important to understand that these fights between kind of pluralists and Islamists 
between those who want more democracy and those pushing back against it. These are really long battles in Indonesian history, and Jokowi is just the latest president to find himself trying to maintain some sort of stability through these deeper tensions of building you know, a huge country out of the arbitrary limits of, of Dutch colonial exploitation. Yeah, really interesting insights that you bring um, to Indonesia. And I wonder, I mean, what, what you, how you see Indonesia on the international stage uh, these days, Ben, because uh, Australia has signed a free trade agreement with Indonesia. But, I mean, how active is, is Indonesia likely to become, do you think? Because it's still very much focused on government ownership of, of companies and the like. I think there's, there's long been a sense um, outside Indonesia and Australia, also in Indonesia too, that Indonesia is a bit of a sleeping giant, that, that the world's fourth most populous country, the world's largest Muslim-majority nation, uh, an economy that was growing relatively fast before, before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, that Indonesia should be much more influential in the region's power politics, in playing in the great power tensions that we see between the U.S. and China, that Indonesia should be some sort of new stabilizing force, uh, that it also can be a, a driver for integration in the region, for you know, economic flourishing. So there's always been that sense that Indonesia has, has disappointed on that front. And I think what we have to understand there, again, is that Indonesia faces so many domestic challenges economically, politically, obviously in terms of health right now, but it doesn't really have the bandwidth to look externally too much. And I think that's also been a problem that's been exacerbated, if you like, under Jokowi, because he really sees foreign policy as a tool for driving economic growth at home. Again, I think it's that lens of the furniture maker. So he wants to do trade deals to get new access to Indonesian products, to bring in foreign investment. He doesn't see foreign policy as you know, a chance for him to be a big talker on the global stage. In fact, I think he's generally aware that the more big speeches you give and the more you get involved in U.S.-China tensions, potentially the more problems you create for Indonesia and you're not bringing many benefits home. So I think, again, that it's a balance between these great ambitions for Indonesia and the reality of trying to, to build you know, an emerging economy um, where you know, people have been getting wealthier overall, but there's still a really, really high degree of social inequality in Indonesia that's actually been getting worse in the last few years. And you note in the book how some of the outside expectations that were placed on Jokowi and, and indeed, I suppose, broadly on Indonesian democracy have perhaps been uh, not necessarily as, as well-informed as they could be or, or maybe even reveal desires for the role that um, Indonesia could play as a strategic partner in the region. And uh, there's a chapter in your book entitled Why We Keep Getting Indonesia Wrong. Why do we? I think it's... This is a, like a broad problem that I would you know, include myself in. Uh, I think it's, it's so easy, partly when you're outside, you're looking at a big emerging country to kind of project your own hopes and fears onto it. And certainly a leader like Jacoby as well is very skilled at allowing people what they want to believe. So I think in the outside world, people tend to think of Jacoby as someone who wants to drive economic liberalization. So Indonesia to open up its markets, its economy to foreign investment. Domestically, he's seen much more and he projects himself much more as an economic nationalist who wants to reduce imports of foreign goods, who wants to reduce foreign investment. So he's quite skilled at being this political chameleon figure. And as I said, I think from the outside, we, we project our hopes and fears. So on the one hand, you always have a, a sense that people think Indonesia is about to descend into, into chaos and the Islamists will take over. On the other hand, there are people saying Indonesia is a beacon from, of which the world should follow its model of toleration. But in fact, 
Indonesia is just a big country with a lot of issues. That's moving ahead in bits and starts. It's making good progress on many fronts. It's having a lot of setbacks. And I think you know, these images of a dramatic um, swing either way are rarely drawn out but by reality. And I think it's partly because we need to just learn more about it as, as a whole, as a population, as researchers, as, as journalists. Um, and we should get to know Indonesia better and kind of embrace that complexity, which I think for all of us, you know, in our brains, it's hard to deal with contradictions. We want to see things simply and in a straightforward lens, but actually often there are, there are these deep tensions there, which actually I think if you embrace them, help you understand it and engage with, with Indonesia more. And I would urge everyone to do that because I just think it's a, it's a fascinating place, which is why I wanted to spend so much time you know, writing a book about Jacoby and, and his country. So when now um, you look at Indonesia and uh, I suppose like many countries around the world um, really focused on the COVID-19 um, pandemic and responding to that. Um, what about the army? What about the Indonesia's military, the, the TNI? Um, I suppose like the Defence Forces here in Australia, they have had a role in the COVID response. Has that been welcomed? And I suppose um, also with regards to Jokowi, how important is the military to his, um, his government, his presidency? As, as Jacoby rose very rapidly in just nine years from, from basically nowhere to the presidency, he's been making accommodations with all the elite powers of the UK to make sure he has a stable political position. And one of those powers is the military in Indonesia. And there is a certain uh, ability within the TNI, within the military, to get things done. Um, there are a lot of current and former generals in and around politics and business. You have a reputation for being relatively practical, pragmatic, and doing things on the ground, which can contrast sometimes with um, you know, the slow-moving bureaucracy, the red tape, etc. So I think, again, from this perspective as a very practical politician, he's very instinctive. Jacoby has reached out to the military um, increasingly to get things done, whether it's um, helping to try and improve the rice production, distributing fertilizer, and now helping to manage the pandemic. So Jacoby does it through a practical lens. But it has raised a lot of concerns for civil society activists in Indonesia, because obviously during the long decades of rule under Suharto, there was effectively a dual power structure where the military had this civilian role um, in managing government, managing society. And there's a fear that that's almost creeping in by default as Jokowi looks to the military to do more and more tasks in society. So, for example, Indonesia's COVID management committee right now it has a number of key military figures on it, which seems a bit strange. While, as you said, the ADF has had, had a role um, in managing things like the quarantine, um, etc., it hasn't been at the front and centre of the decision-making, which has really been driven by epidemiologists, by medical experts. So I think there is that concern in Indonesia about overreach, but it probably stems more from Jokowi's pragmatic nature or practical nature than from any overt desire to overturn the reforms that took the military out of politics. It's really interesting talking about uh, Indonesia's recent history through the lens of Jokowi because in one respect he is an outlier. outlier. As, as we've discussed, he sort of came from relatively little means and, and rose to become the president in quite a short space of time. But there are these very familiar figures who he's aligned with in Indonesian politics who have sort of been there for a long time. How do you think the country sort of evolves in um, sort of a post-Jokowi world when his term finishes? Has Indonesian democracy kind of changed or, or shifted fundamentally throughout his reign as president? I think it's probably... 
probably changed a lot less than many people would have hoped. And ultimately, I feel that Jokowi's story shows us what's possible in Indonesia, that, that a man from simple beginnings can rise from nowhere to the top by working hard, being relatively clean, trying to do a good job and listen to people's concerns. But what it also shows us, which I think is what your question implies, Dylan, is the limits of, of change in Indonesia. And the fact is, while Indonesia did bring in a democratic electoral system after the fall of the Hato in 1998, Many of the individuals, many of the institutions, and also the way of thinking uh, from that authoritarian period still remain. And I think that is concerning, and that, that will curb the ability for, for deeper change of the economy and the political system in Indonesia, because ultimately many of those figures do not have an interest, a vested interest in more accountability, more transparency, more change, more power to the people, a more equal share of, of wealth uh, for, for the mass of the Indonesian population. They have an interest, you know, like all elites everywhere, in maintaining their power status. So I think what it shows us is that Indonesian voters will vote for people who promise change, and, and they want that. But it's hard to, to push through that change because of the nature of, of the political system. And that's just one of the tensions that Indonesia will have to manage going forward. It is concerning that some of those figures, like Prabowo Subianto, who was formerly a son-in-law married to one of Suharto's daughters, uh, a general accused of human rights abuse in the past. He's defense minister now. He looks like he might be one of the strongest candidates to run for presidency next time. And it shows you how much hasn't changed. On the other hand, there are other local leaders who've emerged um, trying to follow Jokowi's mold, if you like, of getting things done at a local level, demonstrating real results in terms of, of concrete benefits for the people and listening more, who are also emerging. So ultimately, it's going to be up to the Indonesian voters to decide what kind of leaders they want to take them their country forward. Yeah, and as you point out, um, it, it, the Indonesian people get to directly vote for their president, and it is a very vibrant democracy in many ways. And I wonder, um, with regards to, I mean, I didn't know about Prabowo being a front runner again. I mean, he's run so many times, isn't he? But I wonder about this idea of, of family connections um, and part of um, Joko Widodo, Jokowi being uh, a clean skin was that he didn't come from a sort of a dynasty or um, a family where there had been um, representatives before. But I understand some of his family members are starting to run now locally. Yeah, so that, that was a big surprise for many of Jokowi's strongest supporters to see in the last year and him really smoothing the way for his son um, to run, who's 32 years old, to run for the mayoralty of Solo, Jacoby's old seat, and his son-in-law running for mayor of Medan, which is a really important commercial center in, in the island of Sumatra. So I think that was quite surprising because Jokowi's whole promise was that he was forged by competitive politics, that he became an effective and successful mayor and governor because he had to win these contested elections, because he had to fight his own way to the top. And with his son and son-in-law, who will, of course, have to win elections, but it looks to many Indonesians like you know, they're effectively almost being crowned. And that seems to undermine a lot of his promise. But I do think we have to understand the context that you know, these sorts of dynasties are quite normal in Indonesia and, in fact, across Asia. So five of children of five of the other six, six Indonesian presidents are currently active in politics, so almost all of them. And across the region, from Xi Jinping to Shinzo Abe recently, Aung San Suu Kyi, Sheikh Hasina in Bangladesh, it's really common to see leaders who are the children or, or grandchildren of powerful political figures. And you know, even in the US, let's not forget the Bushes, and potentially, let's hope not, a new Trump dynasty emerging. So I think that it's normal to an extent, but I think it does undermine what Jokowi was meant to have stood for. 
before, and it disappointed a lot of his strongest supporters. Mm. And, I mean, we don't get a, a lot of news necessarily directly in Australia that at least sort of catches on about domestic politics in Indonesia. But one thing that did seem to catch people's uh, eye in the international press was the plan to move uh, Indonesia's capital to Kalimantan on the island of Borneo. Anyone who's been to Jakarta or is familiar with it knows just how kind of um, how big a consideration that is given, given the population of Jakarta and how it's sinking as well. I think 12 centimetres per year, which is quite unbelievable. But what's your sense of, of this plan and, and whether it will actually proceed as Jokowi might like it to? Well, just firstly, in terms of news from Indonesia, I'd urge people to look up sites like the Jakarta Post, Tempo Magazine, which have you know, really good English language news, very critical, very insightful about Indonesia that, that's really accessible. So it is out there, and I'd, I'd urge people to learn more about Indonesia because it's a fascinating place. But yeah, this, this capital story really caught fire, I think, because of the scale and the ambition and also, I guess, the questionable practicality. So this is like a, a $50 billion plan to build a new capital city, really in jungle and degraded forest land, about a thousand miles away from Jakarta over the sea. So it's very ambitious, um, but the details weren't really there. It seemed like a very instinctive, impulsive move from Jokowi, which quite a number of his advisors were opposed to, because they think the money and the political capital it will take to pull this off would be much better spent doing things like improving the health system. And at the end of the day, moving half a million or a million civil servants and others to, to Kalimantan isn't going to do much to alleviate the pressures on Jakarta, a, a, you know, a city of 30 or 40 million people, once you include all these suburbs surrounding it. And it doesn't do much to solve the, the environmental problems that you alluded to, the, the fact that the city is sinking, it's flooding, it has terrible traffic jams, pollution, etc. not to mention the pandemic. So I think it didn't really make much sense in terms of resolving those issues. And, and one thing that the pandemic has done is it's forced the government to at least put that mission on hold for now. But we don't know if Jacoby is going to seek to reactivate it. Because I think for him, he saw this as the, the crowning glory of his presidency. You know, he's had this real focus in his time in office on building infrastructure, starting as a mayor with building markets and building houses for slum dwellers, you know, up to building the first ever underground subway line for, for Jakarta. Um, so I think he saw building this new capital that was orderly, technologically advanced as being the final piece in the crown uh, for his presidency, but it looks like it may not happen now. Um, but we'll have to see. It might be that he thinks, um, you know, the economy needs some stimulation as the, the pandemic hopefully recedes and that this is a good way to achieve it. So I wouldn't write off his ambitions to do it yet, but it's looking tricky. Yeah, and I suppose he's got four years left, I understand, of his, of his presidency, second go at it. Um, ben, we've kept you a long time. I think um, Dylan and I are both really interested in Indonesia and your, um, your enthusiasm and interest in the country is really infectious, so we just keep asking you questions. But I wanted to sort of finish on asking about this idea of Indonesia at the perpetual crossroads. And I didn't see the Simpsons episode that you allude to in your, in your book um, where this was kind of uh, ridiculed as a continual kind of cliche around Indonesia, but why why is it that you felt it was important to to put this to bed? This idea of Indonesia always being at the crossroads. Well, I'd urge people to look it up. Homer Simpson reads The Economist on YouTube. It, it's there where he, he does read The Economist, <laughs> and it does refer to Indonesia being at a crossroads. It, it's funny to me because this idea, which first came up in I think 1945 or 46, and the first year of Indonesia's independent nationhood, when in fact. It was still fighting a, a bloody war against the former Dutch or current 
then Dutch colonial masters for, for real independence. So there's always been this idea that Indonesia is about to turn some corner. And it alludes to what I was talking to earlier about, will Indonesia become this huge booming economy or will it face economic collapse? Will it become this beacon of Islamic tolerance or will it become, you know, the next Syria? Will, will Indonesia stand up in the world and, you know, bring the US and China together or form a new balance or will it retreat inwards and, and be irrelevant? So I think there's always been this sense of these great expectations about Indonesia and these turning points. But I think it says more about how outsiders see things. And I think I say generally that as humans, it's really hard to, to get your head around these ideas of these fundamental tensions, these contradictions that are always in conflict, always in battle, and there's not necessarily any easy resolution. And we always want to see those, those easy resolutions, and it's one obvious way to frame things, but I think it just doesn't really tell you much about Indonesia. It's not really that helpful a way to try and understand the country. And I think if you can embrace the contradictions, embrace the complexity, it makes Indonesia a more interesting place, and things start to make much more, much more sense, frankly, than always having too high or too low expectations and constantly being disappointed and frustrated. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us on Triple R. It's been really um, great speaking with you, Ben. And um, and thanks also for your book. Um, and uh, hopefully we can catch you again sometime. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Really enjoyed it. Uh, Bland, ben Bland, he's a director of the Southeast Asia Program at the Lowy Institute. He was formerly a correspondent for the Financial Times in Indonesia, China and Vietnam. And the book we've been speaking about is the first English language biography of Joko Widodo, Jokowi, who is the current president of Indonesia in his second term and second and final term. Like the US, um, Indonesia has fixed terms. You can only have two of them. And the book's called Man of Contradictions. Uh, and you can get that through Penguin books. It's one of their series of kind of short reads, so it's a sort of read-it-in-your-afternoon um, type book and, yeah, highly recommended. It. It's very interesting and it's funny, um, I was just thinking about these contradictions, uh, Dylan, and I remember I was um, in Indonesia in 2004 and it would have been one of the pre- presidential race years and um, seeing a, a big, like a, a chariot with six white horses pulling a presidential candidate down one of these narrow roads on Bali and I just went, I don't, I don't get this place, but I, I really love it. <laughs> it was one of those moments, but yeah, so very interesting love to read happening. Ben's book. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.